All right, y'all. Welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Yeah, lots of news to discuss today and some interviews for you. Uh, and politics. I'm going to talk about politics. Sorry, but I'm stuck like this. Man, I have been since I was a little kid. I just, I hate them. I can't stop paying attention. Uh, so it is what it is. Maybe that's why you're here. Maybe not. Uh, okay. So yeah, man, uh, news, politics and interviews, interviews. Uh, the first one, Ray McGovern is going to be on the show to talk about Russia leaving Syria and the future of that war. Did you read the new Coburn? I think it's on the page already at antiwar.com. I have it here too. Uh, well, there's a new Ray. There's a new Patrick as well. Um, it's got a pretty lame headline on it. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's a great piece though. Yeah, read it. It's uh, bringing war to the international level is helping to hold Syria's ceasefire. And uh, the bottom, what the headline is trying to say there is that America and Russia, it turns out, do have the power to make the ceasefire stick, mostly, which is, you know, kind of impressive, I guess. Um, although I sure would like some details, Patrick Coburn is going to be riding on a train and unavailable for discussion on the show today, but, you know, I'm going to try him again tomorrow. Ray, on the other hand, uh, he may not have um, the uh, nuts and bolts on the level of detail that uh, Patrick Coburn does about all the actors, but he's got a great broad view of the international politics and the role of the Russians, etc. there. So Ray's going to be on to talk about that. And then, um, you know, I still have one more invite out. Um, but uh looks like our second slot is going to be open. I really wanted to talk with Rob Prince about Somalia, but he wants to put it off till next week, so okay. But then, at the end of the show, well, I don't want to spoil it. Okay. All right, so I guess the big news of the morning, we should just get right into this, man. We'll talk about uh, the elections yesterday and all that, but let's talk about the big news breaking this morning, and that is that Barack Obama has nominated Merrick Garland, a federal appeals court judge, to be the new associate justice on the Supreme Court to replace Antonin Scalia, who died of a hooker at a ranch in Texas back a few weeks ago. And, well, okay, that's my assumption. All this stuff about, yeah, the secret CIA assassin uh, suffocated him with a pillow and then left the pillow on top of his face, which is the most incriminating thing, which is how you know it was an assassination. I mean, has anybody ever strung together such stupid idiocy ever before? For God's sake. They were going to kill Scalia. Why would they do it there? <laughs> you know? Were they going to leave a bunch of people to tell the tale and stuff like that? Anyway. A pillow? Yeah, whenever I murder someone with a pillow, I always leave the pillow right on their face so that everybody knows exactly how I did it. You see? Brilliant. I learned that in CIA assassin school. Anyway, 
so Merrick Garland, he's been appointed to replace Scalia, who died of a hooker. And uh, I assume. And what's funny about him is, uh, well, according to conventional wisdom, he's a moderate, a centrist. He's, you know, uh, notable only for not being notable. His record, the only thing notable about him that I read at the SCOTUS blog was he always sides with the prosecution and against the defendant. Other than that, meh, he's just another federal judge. Could have, you know, as bad or, uh, as bad as any of them. And almost impossible to differentiate from any of them. But, here's what makes it fun. Mary Garland helped cover up the Oklahoma City bombing. Mary Garland was the Justice Department official in charge of the prosecution of Timothy McVeigh, which is a nice way of saying who supervised the complete and total lack of prosecution of, oh, I don't know, a dozen other men involved, from Roger Moore to Michael Brescia and Richard Guthrie. Well, Guthrie was later murdered in his cell, and so, you know, you could call that justice. He certainly deserved it, but still. Uh, the rest of them, they all get away with it. Andre Strassmeyer and Peter Langen and all these guys that did the Oklahoma bombing with McVeigh, they all got away with it. And it was because, well, mostly I believe it's because most of the neo-Nazis who helped them do it were all flip state's witnesses or undercover informants of one kind or another, with Andre Strassmeyer, I believe, actually being a fake Nazi and not a Nazi at all but simply an undercover officer working on loan from German intelligence, working for, I don't know exactly if the CIA or the military, I don't know. I guess probably the CIA, but I don't know if that was ever really proven. Wait, maybe that was proven. I'm trying to remember now. Man, it's been so many years. I used to be so much better on this, but, uh, you know, let me ask, uh, let me figure that out. Strassmeyer CIA. I think Strassmeyer is in the CIA. I think I'm going to check this book index during the break. But anyway, I think Strassmeyer was not even a Nazi, but an agent provocateur. And anyway, uh, the point of the matter is that um, before September 11th, kids, I know some of you were born in the 90s or something. This is ancient history to you. I don't know. But before September 11th, Oklahoma bombing, the Oklahoma City bombing was September 11th in terms of the level of shock to the American psyche bombing in the heartland, 169 killed, a daycare center on the first floor. Really, literally. Uh, It was the worst thing that had happened since second wounded knee. Uh, It was an absolute catastrophe. It was double the Waco massacre. Which was the worst thing since Wounded Knee, I guess. Uh, and the thing of it was, they blamed it all on one guy. And, forgive me, but completely implausibly, okay? Yes, Timothy McVeigh's closest friend and only accomplice was two states away at the time. 
Just swallow it. Swallow it. And that was it. And everybody would go, okay. I mean, I guess if there was more for me to know about it, the government would let us know about it, right? And that was it. John Doe 2? Well, there is no John Doe 2. And never mind 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 either. What do you mean McVeigh had associates? What would we, what could be, we possibly need to know about any of them? Uh, the fact they got away, it's O.J. Simpson's fault, really, that they got away with it. If it hadn't have been for that damn O.J. trial, the American people might have been interested in what happened in Oklahoma City, but O.J. washed it all away. As, uh, one author pointed out back then, had a chapter in his Oklahoma bombing book called Let Them Eat O.J. You know, this would be good enough for you. Here, oh, there's a, you want to be interested in a criminal prosecution of somebody? Here, football star. Interracial thing and everything for you. Have a ball, everybody. Never mind the least plausible cover-up in American history. Perpetrated by the man who Obama just nominated to be an associate justice on the Supreme Court for playing ball on that one. And you know, it's not like any FBI or, or ATF agents would have gone to prison. They just might have had to resign. Would have been the worst that could have happened to them, right? Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Oh, yeah, I forgot to look that up on the index during the break there. Well, I was doing something else. Let me check out Strassmeyer here on this index. Um, let me see here. Where are we at? Uh, yeah, it's my show, The Scott Horton Show. And, uh, yeah, I know, lousy production values and everything, but it's just me, myself, and I here, folks. Strassmeyer and CIA, 98.99. Let's see. <clears throat> this is um, Gumbel and Charles, Oklahoma City. And I think it's in the in the appendix here. They have a new um, a new document implicating CIA and running Strassmeyer. Where is this here? Um, nah, ninety-eight, ninety-nine is inconclusive here. Strassmeyer and CIA two sixty-five, two sixty-five, and oops. 
Man. Uh, no, I don't think this is conclusive either. If, if I remember right, when the book came out, Roger said and showed us, right? Wasn't it in the appendix somewhere where they have a document? See, the problem is the book, it really should have been written more by Roger and less by uh, Roger Charles and less by Andrew Gumbel. Although, you know, I don't know. I guess Gumbel did a pretty good job, but... The book is deliberately written to be the soft sell, right? It's it could have it could have been much uh, much harsher, more conclusive in a lot of ways, I think. But still, um, I could see the motive for doing that would be to make it easier for people to take it up, as not Oklahoma truth or stupidity, but wow, the real truth about a cover up that happened, you know, which is a different kind of a narrative. Oklahoma City. What the invested, ow man, stop biting my tongue, me. What the investigation missed and why it still matters. And, uh, you can actually watch an interview of Andrew Gumbel by Peter Bergen. And I'm, you know, don't spit on your own floor. He's the CNN and New America Foundation Al Qaeda expert. And, you know, that goes quote unquote. He can be really horrible sometimes. You know, I can see that. But anyway, the point is that he's at the New America Foundation, which is sort of, you know, Council on Foreign Relations Jr. It's not a neocon think tank. It's a sort of, well, maybe it's more like Brookings Jr., sort of center-left to Democratic-leaning official establishment, um, you know, Stephen Clemens thing with uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter and all them. Very... The point is how official and centrist and moderate and acceptable they are. And if you type in Peter Bergen and Andrew Gumbel, Oklahoma City, uh, then you could see an hour-long discussion about this. And that ought to, you know, in the social psychology of the situation, that ought to make normals feel a little bit better about learning this stuff. Some pretty tough revisionist history, but it's credible, as you can tell. And by the way, you know what, let me go ahead. I went uh, searching for my my footnote earlier, and I did find it. I need to, um, oh, this is the lesser quote. This is the main quote. Um, I need to memorize this page number, man, 328. 328, I don't know how I'm going to make that stick in my brain here. Page 328 of Oklahoma City by Charles and Gumble. Uh, this paragraph is about Larry Mackey, who was one of the U.S. attorneys who did the prosecuting, or one of the federal prosecutors, I should say. And um, I've read this quote to you guys before, but I think it's important. And forgive all the kind of government double and triple speak here. It is a government employee I'm quoting here, but here's what he says. Uh, the book says, Privately, Mackey never stopped wondering if others were involved and said many of his colleagues felt the same way. Quote, If you'd said to us, anybody in the room 100% confident that McVeigh was alone, raise your hand, we would have all kept our hands in our laps. End quote. So in other words, <laughs> anybody in this room who believes you let mass murderers get away with mass murder, raise your hand, all their hands would have gone straight up. They let him get away with it. 
They admit it. They know it. And that's according to the federal prosecutor. Now, of course, the excuse that they, you know, it's half plausible, too, that this is at least part of the reason. You know, at least this was part of the discussion that they had. So they're not 100 percent lying when they, you know, quote themselves later saying, well, you know, they didn't want to jeopardize the death penalty case against McVeigh. And if they had to admit that all these other guys were in on it, too, then it would have been that much easier for McVeigh's crafty lawyers to say, well, these other guys made him do it. My client is just the stupid idiot that they put in the driver's seat. And, but the government was convinced that he was really the mastermind, the, the most responsible. And they figured it would be better to let everybody else get away with it than risk McVeigh only getting life. That was basically what they claim. That's their excuse. I'm not saying that that really is their reason. I already said what I think their reason is. They knew all about it. It was their uh, informants and, and flip states witnesses. And in other words, many ATF and FBI agents were compromised by the true story. It was their fault that the thing had happened. In fact, pretty sure it's in this same book. Um about or it's in uh no it's in uh uh Ambrose Evans Pritchard's book where he talks about McVeigh uh ATF and FBI on a plane on a private plane, you know, small little Cessna flying between here and there. And there's a big argument uh, about the ATF's undercover investigation of Elohim City uh, Nazis in eastern Oklahoma at this property where they all live called Elohim City, and how the FBI said, no, we will handle it, not you idiots again, uh, after Waco, etc., like this. We are in charge of the, of the Elohim City investigation, and you will back off and pulled rank and made them stop. And then guess who it was? It was Bob Ricks who was the spokesman for the FBI during the Waco massacre, who mocked the dying children that he gassed and burned to death. He was the one who shut down the ATF's investigation and said, we'll take care of it, and then didn't take care of nothing. And so what are you going to do? Crucify Bob Ricks on top of a hill where everyone can see him for miles around? Or pretend that there, every All 24 witnesses who saw McVeigh that morning, all of them, who saw him with somebody else, were all wrong. They must have not have seen anyone, anyone at all. That's why I had no eyewitnesses at the trial who saw McVeigh, because everyone who did see him that morning saw him with a passenger in his truck. Yeah. They got away with that, really. They did. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by Audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audiobook of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Show. 
All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Our first guest today is our good friend Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst, head of the Soviet division, uh, former briefer for Vice President George H.W. Bush in the Reagan years, co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, and full-time peacenik writer for uh, RayMcGovern.com, ConsortiumNews.com, and AntiWar.com, where today we are running Putin Shun's Syrian Quagmire. Welcome back to the show. How are you, Ray? I'm doing fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing good. Good to see you. I can see you on Skype today, so that's nice. Nobody else can see me, I hope. <laughs> no, they can't. I don't. It ain't set up that way, and I don't even have a camera in here for me. But anyway. Okay. Yeah. Because I can't, haven't combed my hair yet. Yeah, no. Hey, you know what? It doesn't look too bad. Your hairline is actually doing a bit better than mine, old man, so. <laughs> um, all right. Putin shuns Syrian quagmire. Why would he do such a stupid thing? Everybody knows that quagmires are great. That's why America gets in them all the time. <laughs> well, you know, the wonder, Scott, is that uh, no one believed what he said at the beginning. You know, he said, I'm, we're going in to stabilize the situation with the Syrian government, which meant, uh, you know, on the field, it, it meant you're not going to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. That's uh, that's one regime change too many, actually two, if you count the the one in Kiev. Uh, and so we're coming in and we're going to stabilize the situation. When we get it stable enough, we're going to leave uh, when there are conditions for what he called a compromised political settlement, end quote. Well, hello. Uh, everyone was sort of uh, kind of uh, cajoled into believing, well, you know, major world leaders, they didn't have to do what they say, you know. And so obviously he's going to hang around until until he wins, <laughs> wins, right? Uh, and, and he saw what the situation looked like. He, he wanted to make sure that Assad, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, didn't get any illusions uh, that the Russians are going to pull his chestnuts completely out of the fire. That is, try to reestablish Syria as it used to be. And so the best thing is to get out and uh, make sure the Americans are on board, which they are. Uh, mirabili deep dictu, you know, uh, it's a miracle, but they are. And, uh, you know, Geneva, the, the notion of getting these groups together and working something out, well, it's still an uphill battle. But the battle is different now when you have Moscow and you have Washington and you have others pretty much got religion that, you know, if you're a human being, you have certain uh, a certain responsibility uh, to prevent uh, the carnage that has already happened in Syria. And if you're a European, you have a political interest in stemming the flow of refugees. So there's lots of incentive now to work something out. The cease, this, and I was going to say ceasefire, the cessation of hostilities uh, seems to be holding again, and no one expected it to. So th there's a lot of good news here. And as far as the Russians are concerned, uh, you know, it's really quite amazing that people should be surprised that they saw they saw their advantage in not getting enmeshed in a quagmire, having known for a long time what it's like in Afghanistan and what it's like for what they call their partner, the United States, in not only Vietnam, not only Afghanistan, but, you know, add Iraq, add Syria, 
Ed Libya, some, you know, Squagmire seems to be uh, you know, our thing and uh, explains a lot why uh, the military industrial congressional complex has 170 bases around the world. Uh, if we, we're in one quagmire uh, and we get out, well, uh, there's always another one to get into. And quagmires and wars and tension, as you know, Scott, are very good for business. Yeah, well, for some at the expense of the rest, of course. But yeah, yeah. Um, for well, for the ones in the ones with the connections, uh, they certainly are. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, the, the Russians, they just don't have that kind of budget to play around with. They've got to be realistic, uh, when it, right. you know, with low oil prices right now. They're not an empire anymore. That's right. They've already cut back 5% on their military budget for this year. And that has to do with economics. You know, it's interesting. If you have some perspective on this, uh, there was a book, uh, written. It was called Khrushchev Remembers. And what he remembered uh, was his political life. And he gave this to uh, to a fellow who now is a neocon. But at least he wrote this book. And in it, he talks about uh, Khrushchev's discussions with Eisenhower. Okay? Dwight D. Eisenhower. And Eisenhower says, you know, I, I can't uh, deal with this military-industrial complex because what they tell me is they come into my office and they say, the Russians are doing this. A, B, and C. We've got to do it too. And Khrushchev says, whoa, that's exactly what happens here. <laughs> okay? So there it is. The two leaders of the, of the world at that particular time admitting that once, uh, the, the defense ministry or the, the, the defense set up here, uh, and the people who uh, are fed by it, the uh, what Pope Francis called the blood-soaked arms merchants, once they get into the president's office, even with Obama, or especially with Obama, uh, you've got a real problem. So that's what we have here. And the big new element, uh, Scott, that I really haven't had a chance to, to deal with just yet, but um, as you may remember, when I cut my teeth on, on analysis of Soviet foreign policy, my, my portfolio was China. Uh, it was Vietnam. It was the international communist movement. Now, China was the big deal because it looked like the Chinese and the Russians didn't like one another. You know, whoa, <laughs> there were, you know, there were troglodytes who say, oh, McGovern, you're being taken in here. They're both commies. They're both commies. How can they differ with each other? Well, it was so clear that they that they started a border a skirmish skirmishes along the rivers there. It was so clear that they you know they defeated each other at every turn, and the Chinese went so far as to prevent to prevent the transit of Soviet military aid to Vietnam. That's how bitter the thing was. Okay, so we were convinced we smart guys in Washington that the Russians and the Chinese hated each other. And they would hate each other forever. Guess what? <laughs> when Kissinger left, I will have to give him credit for one thing. He played this triangular relationship in a beautiful way. He went to China. And immediately after that, what did we get? We got arms control agreements with the Russians. We got a quarterpartite agreement on Berlin, where the East Germans and the Russians wouldn't Harris 
the supply or the trains or the planes that went in there. We got all manner of concessions from the Russians by playing the Chinese card. Now, why do I mention all that? Well, I mention all that because at that time, the uh, the trade the trade uh, situation between Russia and China was, get this, four hundred million dollars a year. <laughs> That's a paltry sum, okay? Now what is it? Well, the Chinese are getting sophisticated weaponry from Russia. There's big bucks involved, and I think the last time I looked, the trade uh, relationship involves at least $50 billion, B with a B, all right? Now, that's a big change. So why is it that Putin says, well, all right, uh, the, the Americans and NATO are being bellicose on our border uh, in, in Europe. Uh, they're making trouble for us everywhere else. But still, we're going to cut 5% off our military budget. How's he get away with that? Well, because China has its back. And that's new. And that's big. I would go so far as to suggest that if uh, the strange, uh, no, it's not strange love, what's his name? Breed love, the general who heads NATO. Were he to to cause some, some real problems here, military problems in Europe, I will bet you that the Chinese will come and say, knock it off. All right, hold it right there, Ray. We'll be right back, everybody. It's Ray McGovern right after this. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. <laughs> All right, you guys. You got to admit you love my bumper music. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst, now veteran intelligence professional for sanity, writes for Consortium News mostly. We run all of it at antiwar.com, original.antiwar.com slash McGovern. This one is Putin shuns Syrian quagmire. And um, so when we left off at the break there, we're talking about uh, healing the old Sino-Soviet split, um, American policy backfiring again. But And I want to talk about, do you think there's any way I could keep you into um, the next hour and do the first segment of the next hour too, Ray? This is a good day for me, uh, Scott. Sure, you can do that. Great, because I happen to have an opening and lots of questions for you. <laughs> so that'll be nice. Okay, so, uh, but let's get back to Syria for a minute here, because uh, as you mentioned, the ceasefire success has been a surprise, and I think probably only in a way, right? Like everybody knew that if Russia agreed, then they could get uh, the Syrian army and and the Syrian government, the Iranians and Hezbollah and everybody to fall in line with their decision for peace. The part that seems surprising, I guess, was that Arar al-Sham and then whatever other so-called mythical moderate groups 
apparently quit fighting as well. Um, and yet I read that in recent days, um, the uh, I guess two days ago, al-Nusra came in and obliterated one of the last of these so-called mythical moderate groups um, and uh, seized all their weapons, possibly even including their tow missiles that America and Saudi had given them and that kind of thing. But I was just wondering if... Um, if that's the part that was the surprise to you, too, that the CIA's backed terrorists, that they're not just backed by the CIA, but apparently controlled by them, too, that America and or Saudi can turn them off with a switch. Um, and does that count for Arar al-Sham? Because I would have thought that they would have sided and stuck much more with the al-Nusra front than any other mythical moderate groups. Uh, Scott, I'll be really <laughs> frank with you. Um I'm not uh, so well informed about which uh, moderate or immoderate or terrorist group uh, is is fighting still and which not. What I would suggest is that it is a surprise uh, that so much uh, relative peace now reigns in Syria for the last two weeks as a result of this agreement. And it's easy to say, well, you know, once the U.S. and, and, and Russia agreed on this, it was going to happen. That wasn't so clear at the time. So that's a very good sign. What I would say is that the the focus is now on Geneva. And uh, TASS today, the, uh, the Russian news service, is reporting that these two groups, you know, the, gov- the representatives of the government, these are intra-Syrian talks going on. So you can imagine how delicate and how difficult they are. But uh, uh, the UN... Uh, coordinator here is talking in very optimistic terms. He's talking about uh, actual uh, negotiations, actual position papers that are being surfaced by both sides. And that's new. Last time they got together, they quit after two days and they they say, hey, this is getting nowhere. Well, let's do it in four weeks again. So this is four weeks, about eight weeks. But that's a good a good sign. So uh, what I would do is to say it's not uh, gilding the lily to accentuate the positive here. The Russian withdrawal is a big deal. Uh, it's being played by the UN representative uh, as uh, a, a catalyst for other people working out their differences. And perhaps most important, you know, uh, Russia saved Bashar al-Assad from being overthrown. God, when you think about if they hadn't come in, we have... ISIS on on the Mediterranean now? Anyhow, they saved Bashar al-Assad, so he owes them big time. Now they're gone, okay? <laughs> now, and they only intervened just enough to save him, but not enough to help him win the war. That's exactly right. So, you know, if he has any ambitions of reconstituting Syria as it existed before the war, uh, the Russians have made it very clear to him, I'm sure, forget about it, okay? Now, if he wants to be real hard-nosed and, and sabotage these negotiations, I'm sure the Russians would say, forget about it, Bashar al-Assad. We're not going to permit this. We're not going to support you unless you show more flexibility. You're wobbly now. We're not there anymore en masse as we were before. And so I think a part of this has to do with the Russians speaking <laughs> cold turkey, so to speak, to Assad and saying, look, we're putting a lot of investment in this and so are the americans for that 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 matter uh, so if you can work something out here with these uh, uh rebels 
uh, that's what's going to have to happen here. And we will help secure whatever comes out of here. But you've got to show some flexibility. We ain't around anymore. We're not going to carry your water. So that's a big thing. And that's an incentive for to Assad. If he wants to keep what he has, and that's most of Syria, most of the population, and I dare say most of the army that is still sympathetic to him, even though they're not all Alawites, and most of the Sunnis are still sympathetic to him. If he wants to keep a, a, a nation and he wants to uh, have free elections in which he would undoubtedly win, as he did last time, then he has to play ball. The ball is in his court as well as it's in the court of Geneva. And that, I think, is the big news coming out today and yesterday where these people did get together and they're holding what seemed to be almost substantive talks about how to work this out. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you know, the big problem with all of this is that probably half the country, at least in land area, I know a lot of it is worthless desert out there in the east of the country, but still, you know, quite a few towns are held by the al-Nusra Front and the Islamic State, both of which are, you know, politically impossible to negotiate with in any sense. They've got to be destroyed by somebody at some point. So I wonder, you know, what you think the Russian slash American plan for that is. Well, the Russian statement, Putin statement uh, the other night or the other afternoon, uh, was very clear in saying that our forces in uh, in the, the air base there near Damascus and in Latakia remain. And uh, things remain. That's why I was really interested in, in looking at the Russian, what he said. Uh, you know, you get all kinds of translations. But uh, what he said was uh, uh, things uh, with respect to the bases will remain um, which means as usual, like it was before. All right. And so that means that if you're ISIS, if you're al-Nusra, uh, you better get down under the ground because, in my view, uh, the assault on these folks from the, uh, the residual force that the Russia has in Syria and from the Americans, that will continue. In other uh, words, your translation of before means the day before yesterday, not before the intervention last fall. That's correct. Uh-huh. In other words, uh, not, only, not only Secretary of State Kerry and Foreign Minister Lavrov have worked out this uh, mutual agreement that, uh, you know, ISIS and al-Nusra are fair game, okay? And not only that, but it was followed up by really uh, strong air action. That's still on the board. <clears throat> the uh, What Putin did in, this, in removing the bulk of the troops, and that's what he says, the bulk, it's not all of them. And that's another reason you need to go to the, to the uh, uh, Russian translation. He says... Uh, uh, which means the withdrawal of uh, the bulk of the troops or or the main part of the troops. So let's be clear. Uh, the ones that were there before the big buildup are still there. And I think that if I were an ISIS or an al-Nusra guy, I think I'd go deep under the ground at this point. Yeah, well, um, I guess it remains to be seen. You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, the buildup for a prepared invasion of Mosul, but then I I get nothing but conflicting articles, one after the others, uh, that say, yeah, this is coming soon, or yeah, maybe, you know, in a year, or, or, or you know, next winter, or something like that. But mm-hmm. um, on the other it's- hand, you know, apparently 
Shia militias and Iraqi so-called uh, army forces, Shiistan army forces and Peshmerga are getting ready to, uh, as best they can, to assault Mosul and drive the Islamic State out of power there. So I guess at that point, like you're saying, they'll just go from a state back to an insurgency, back to underground again. That's right. They, you know, they had certain vestiges of an actual state. But I think uh, it is fair to say, and I'm reluctant to, well, yeah, I'm reluctant to say, but I think it's true that ISIS, ISIL or Daesh has suffered major setbacks now. The more so since the Russians have sort of broken the supply lines uh, that come down from Turkey, uh, not only to to the, <laughs> the so-called moderate rebels, but these other fellows. And Turkey has got to make some basic decisions as well. All right, that's where we're going to pick up this conversation in like eight minutes or something, Ray. So you can go take a break. Uh, we'll be back at six after with the great Ray McGovern on the Scott Horton Show. Hey, all Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. I'm going overtime here with Ray McGovern on the line. Putin shuns Syrian quagmire is the piece running today at antiwar.com. And so, uh, of course, this discussion, it's all proxy war, Cold War fight between uh, the American Empire and uh, the Russians and the Chinese, for that matter, as Ray was mentioning earlier. Um, so we're going to get back into healing the Sino-Soviet split and what it all means. But um, first, I wanted to go back to what you were saying right there at the break about the Turks and all the tough choices that they have to make. And and uh, it seems like uh, President Erdogan uh, is making worse and worse choices all the time over there. I don't know. Uh, but he's got a lot of pressure on him as well. Um, to go along, but what do you think uh, is going to happen there, or, or, or how much conflict is there? Do you think between Turkey's position and America's real position in this, not the not the uh, the public one, but the America's real position in this war? Well, uh, Scott, I would say the Americans' real position of a couple of years ago was that the Turks would help us insert quote moderate end quote rebels into Syria help equip them, help arm them, and uh, that's what the Turks did. Now, the Turks not only did that, but with or without our acquiescence, they brought chemical agents into Syria. We know that uh, because two Turkish parliamentarians in December, now, you haven't read that in the New York Times or the Washington Post, have you? But in December... Using court documents from a judicial proceeding uh, showed that uh, eight or so people were involved in the transit of the precursors to sarin and other chemical weapons from Europe through Turkey down into, into Syria. Now, those parliamentarians said it's a very good guess that that was the sarin that was used, that was used in the attack of August 21, 2013, outside of Damascus 
the one that John Kerry and others seized upon saying Bashar al-Assad did it, Bashar al-Assad did it. Well, the reality is that he didn't do it. Who was it? It was these so-called moderate rebels. And who made it possible? The Turks, okay? The Turkish intelligence service. We had reporting about that at the time. And we told the president, we veteran intelligence professionals for sanity were in touch with our former colleagues and other people. We knew that that sarin was homemade sarin. It was not the sarin that was in Syrian government stocks. So why do I mention all that? Well, we almost went to war with Syria, didn't we? Uh, Read Jeffrey Goldberg's article in The Atlantic. Uh, the president was, uh, you know, hours away from pushing the button until, and Jeffrey Goldberg doesn't mention this, until General Martin Dempsey, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, went to the president the evening after John Kerry said 35 times, Bashar al-Assad's government, Bashar al-Assad's government did it, did it, did it. Okay. <laughs> Dempsey goes to the president and he says, Mr. President, I've just heard from my British colleague. He tells me they have a sample of the sarin that was used on August 21 outside Damascus. It's homemade sarin, Mr. President. It's not from Syrian army stocks. Now, if you want to press the button, well, that's, you know, your business. I'm just advising you, but, but the UN investigators inspection team are still in Damascus. They don't come back for three days. And if you push the button, you know, I know that the press is going to be feeding on me. They're going to say, General Dempsey, why could you not have waited three, four more days till the UN inspectors came back to tell us, you know, what kind of sarin it was? And I'm going to have to say to the press, uh, it beats the hell out of me, go as the president. <laughs> now, I don't think Dempsey did it in those clearer terms, but all I know is that within 20 hours, the president went up in the White House Rose Garden and said, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Martin Dempsey, has advised me that there is, quote, no time sensitivity, end quote, to this operation against Syria. And therefore, uh, we can do it tomorrow or next day or next week or next month. And so I have decided to go to Congress for appropriate authorization. Now, uh, there's a lot more to that story. The British, for the first time in 3,472 years, uh, voted against war in their parliament. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a lot of dissent in the United States at the time, whether we should have another war. So there was more to the story. But the basic thing was that the Turks set us up, set the U.S. president up. And that's clear now. Now, you don't find it at the Times. I wonder if you, you find it in the London Review of Books. All right. You do. But I wonder if the president's daily brief that I used to brief personally to Ronald Reagan's most senior and national security advisors, including Vice President Bush and, you know, the rest of them. I wonder if the president knows that he's been mousetrapped to that degree. And if so, whether he would uh, take the, the necessary uh, uh, conclusions from that. And what I mean by that is the Turks can't be trusted. And the Turks are, well, unpredictable. Erdogan is a little bit of a, well, I would not want to trust his judgment. He shot down the Russian plane, for God's sake. Now, the Turks are a problem because they're our ally. I mean, a real ally, not like Israel, which is not a real ally, not like uh, Saudi Arabia, same thing. You know, to be an ally, you need a mutual defense treaty. And there is none. 
with Israel. There is none with Saudi Arabia. So you can call that, you can call that, uh, you know, an ally if you want, but it ain't an ally. So Turkey is an ally. So let's say the Russians and the Turks get involved in a uh, little, little shooting match. Well, you know, the troglodytes like General Strange, I'm not, not Strange Love, General Breedlove up there at NATO, he's going to be beating on the press and the president to retaliate against those bad Russians. Well, that's really, really a problem. And so what Obama's got to do is talk Turkey to Turkey, so to speak. No pun intended. He's got to tell them, look, you stir up a, a real problem with Russia. I don't care if you're a member of NATO or not. We're going to tell it like it is. If you provoked it, we're going to tell our NATO allies, don't expect us to you know, come in and pick your chestnuts out of the fire. But, you know, Erdogan can't be depended on to even listen to that. So that's a real problem. The Saudis and the uh, Qataris and, and the other rich Arabs, now that's a different problem. The problem there is simply, now, you, you, your listeners need to know this, because <laughs> the most, well, they need to know this. During Barack Obama's tenure, so seven years, 100 billion, B with a B, dollars worth of military aid has been offered by our arms merchants and arms manufacturers to Saudi Arabia. That's a lot of money. Okay, now. People say, oh, yeah, but uh, only 50 billion has been approved. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, only as an adverb or an adjective does not belong before 50 billion dollars. That's the fly in the ointment. That's why Pope Francis, you know, talked about the blood soaked arms merchants. So these powerful people exercising this influence, well, they can't go to Obama can't say, well, forget about those $50 billion. We're going to talk Turkey. <laughs> We're going to talk Turkey to the Saudis, so to speak. They have to knock it off. So that's why you have the Saudis feeling pretty confident they can do anything they darn well please. And they have the leverage on us. It's not vice versa. So will Obama face into that? I don't know. That remains to be seen. But that's an essential ingredient here. And I like to think that he might be tempted to do that. Because, you know, what the Saudis are doing, not only beheading their own people, not only giving them 50,000 lashes, but destroying the country of Yemen. Uh, you know, the, the people of the world are getting to know that. Maybe the Saudis need to be set back a little bit. Maybe, maybe we could get, see what we're afraid of, what our arms manufacturers are afraid of. You know, if we put the Saudi noses at a joint, what's going to happen? Oh, the French! The British, oh, the Russians, they're going to sell all this arms. We'll be out $50 billion. Though, you know, is it beyond the power of our diplomats to go to Paris, to go to London, to go to Moscow and say, look, we're going to, we're going to talk Turkey to the Saudis and we don't want you coming in behind us selling us all those arms. All right, wait, 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 Ray. Hold it right there, y'all. We'll be right back. One more with Ray McGovern after this. Hey, y'all, Scott here. The thing is, I need you guys to help me to get these download numbers up. So do me a favor and sign up for the podcast feeds of this show. You can choose the whole show or just the interviews at iTunes and Stitcher. All the buttons you need are at the top of the right margin at scotthorton.org. The more subscribers I have, the more iTunes and Stitcher will help promote the show to new listeners. If you're a hardcore fan, brand new or from way back, please leave them customer ratings and reviews, too. Trying to get these wars ended. All right, y'all, I'm taking advantage of Ray McGovern's generosity now. 
I still got him on the line here. Consortiumnews.com, original.antiwar.com slash McGovern. Um, we're talking about his piece on uh, Russia accomplishing its goals uh, in Syria and getting the hell out, saving Assad, uh, not helping him win, but saving him from defeat and uh, mostly leaving. But then, as Ray was explaining, nah, they'll still be staying and doing airstrikes against the Islamic State and the illness refront to some degree. Um, but uh, anyway... Um, so we're talking about that. We're talking about the role, of course, of Turkey and of Saudi Arabia. But now I want to get back to what you were mentioning in the first uh, segment there about Russia and China and how America has helped to heal the old split that Kissinger had exploited back in the 1970s uh, during the era of one world communism uh, and how uh, America defeated them by splitting them up. So... Um, the deal is, uh, well, I wanted to, to mention to you something that I'm, I'm willing to bet that you read by Alfred McCoy not long ago, uh, for Tom Dispatch, all about the American panic over not just Russia and China, but Europe too, agreeing, it, at least in principle, to these long-term projects for building, uh, superhighway, Rail lines, pipelines, electric lines, and whatever kind of lines you could possibly build between Lisbon and Shanghai and connecting all of Eurasia on one massive corridor of energy and trade and transportation and all of this and how this is the Americans' worst nightmare. In fact, Chalmers Johnson told me on the show years ago, in the old days, this would have been America's worst nightmare in the world would be Russia going ahead, I mean, Europe going ahead and teaming up with Russia and China. Now, our policymakers seem to be doing everything they can to push all these guys together. Now, I'm not sure what we have to lose. I mean, our politicians maybe have influence to lose, but I don't know what the American civilization has to lose if Eurasia gets it together and starts trading instead of killing each other. But, uh, anyway, I wonder what you think of all of that. And as far as, especially in terms of, you know, how American policy, you know, is a reaction to that in a sense or the cause and the reaction. Yeah. Well, the basic thing in my view, Scott, to remember is that U.S. politicians have either a two year or a four year uh, vista uh, perspective. Uh, they can't think beyond four years or eight years. Uh, and this is a long term trend. This is probably it, it probably dwarfs in importance anything else having to do with the with the strategic equation. The empire is on its way out. The United States empire It's just that it can't be. It's not perceptible all that much just yet. But the things you mentioned, uh, not only the rapprochement with China on Moscow's part, but the fact that the, finally the West European, you know, it's been 70 years since we saved them from the Nazis. They're going to grow up sooner or later. I'd give them maybe five, ten more years, and they'll see that their interests are better served by looking elsewhere rather than doing things, uh, cutting off their nose to spite their throat or, or vice versa in, in instituting sanctions, economic sanctions on Russia. So this is a long-term uh, trend. Uh, myopia prevails in Washington, and little by little, as I already said, uh, the Russians don't have to build up their defense potential too much anymore. They're not really afraid of of what the strange love or breed love will do. Uh, the commander of NATO, uh, the, you know, the, the U.S. Army is not going to going to do anything desperate. Now, the Turks might do something. 
And uh, anyhow, what, what uh, really obtains here is a strategic rearrangement, uh, what is called the New Silk Road, which is going on uh, from, you know, from China, as you said, to Portugal, uh, could become a reality. And the supreme irony, and I'll only take one more minute to, to say this, is that, you know, I go back a ways. And if you go back to 1979, 1989, actually, when the Berlin Wall fell, okay, there was talk there, sincere talk by people like George H.W. Bush of one united free Europe from Lisbon, not to Beijing, but to Vladivostok. Now, the the military-industrial congressional complex put the kibosh on that. But this new arrangement, where the new Silk Road coming from China all the way to Lisbon, that's more a reality now than anyone would have dreamed just 10 years ago. So the empire is sort of doomed, and the question is whether the U.S. politicians will be adroit enough or knowledgeable enough to work out reasonable deals where Americans will not suffer too terribly. That remains to be seen. Yeah, well, like you were saying before, as long as we have our arms merchants have such an interest in keeping this thing going. And, you know, there's very little detailed journalism about how this goes. You know, the last real great article I read about it was back 10 years ago by Richard Cummings, all about how Lockheed had learned the lesson that they don't just want to sell only to the military. That'll guarantee their profits. They need to help determine what the policy is going to be and who we're going to be attacking so that they know what kind of tanks to make and, and that kind of thing. Uh, what kind of planes we're going to need so that they don't make bad investments. A captive, um, captive market isn't good enough. They need to captivate the policy behind the market too. So they created the committee to expand NATO was a creation of Lockheed, the committee for the liberation of Iraq, which specialized in human rights concerns as opposed to weapons of mass destruction. But still, again, set up by Bruce Jackson, a Lockheed. And then it turns out that all the political neocons, um, you know, Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz and all the ones in the actual administration, that separate government, as Colin Powell called it in the first Bush Jr. administration, they were all Lockheed guys as much as they were Likudniks. And yet, but who's documenting this now? And I mean, we can all see it from the outside, but who's got a good insider on, on how they dictate, say, for example, the policy in Yemen or the policy in Ukraine? Well, you have some folks writing about arms control, um, and there are there is a lot of information out there on the web comparing uh, our defense expenditures and what Boeing as well as Lockheed see as, as their interests. Uh, what is not appreciated by the American people is the insatiable greed, the insatiable greed not only of the corporations that profiteer on war, but the chinovniks, the the bureaucrats, the people like Pearl, Wolfowitz, and others who sit up in their ivory towers, have their martinis, and think about how they'll make the next million. I know that to be the case. I don't understand it because I don't know what one does with their second million dollars. Uh, call me naive, but uh, I come from a more proletarian background. It's really hard for me to understand it. I do know it. All right, so that's Ray McGovern. Um, he uh, was a CIA analyst for 27 years, was the chief of their Soviet division, 
and of course was the briefer for H.W. Bush when he was vice president in the 1980s. He's the co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, and he writes at uh, raymcgovern.com, consortiumnews.com, and original.antiwar.com slash McGovern, where his latest is running today, Putin shuns Syrian quagmire. Thank you so much, especially for staying the whole hour with us today, Ray. Welcome, Scott. Sure appreciate it. Talk to you soon. And we'll be right back with Roger Charles right after this. Hey, all Scott here. If you like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Up next, it's Roger Charles. He is the co-author with Andrew Gumbel of Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed and Why It Still Matters. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Roger? Scott, good to chat with you, buddy. Yeah, yeah, good to have you back on the show. So, um... I didn't uh, I didn't recognize the name, but uh, when Barack Obama announced this morning, or it was announced, I guess, uh, his choice uh, to replace uh, Antonin Scalia as Associate Justice on the Supreme Court, uh, this guy Merrick Garland, I thought, huh, yeah, whatever, you know, some other, some federal judge. But then they said, yeah, he oversaw the Oklahoma City bombing case, and this oh, is supposedly to his credit. <laughs> And yes, I thought, that, huh, they're bragging about that? What? Bragging about that. That's something to brag about because he successfully orchestrated the cover-up for the first part of the uh, period of investigation. All right. Now, that is a huge accusation. Now, whether well, there was a huge cover-up there, I mean, give me a break. But now, well, explain yeah. and, and really elaborate because when I check the index in the book, there's hardly anything on him, and I know that you guys couldn't cover everything in the yeah. book, obviously. Yeah. Uh, some yeah. choices had to be made there. But so, you know, tell us everything that you think you could possibly tell us that we could need to know about his role in the cover-up of the Oklahoma City bombing. Well, he was chief of the uh, Justice Department Criminal Division at the time of the bombing on the 4, uh, 4 1995, April 1995. On the 27th of April, 95, eight days later, he personally appears at McVeigh's preliminary hearing in Oklahoma City. And in that hearing, an FBI agent, John Hersley, discusses in detail a surveillance camera that is mounted on the exterior of the... Uh, uh, what the heck? The, the uh, uh, apartment uh, building, right? Uh, west of the federal building. And uh, this uh, camera uh, and the agent went, personally went into some detail about how it could pan the length of Fifth Street, which ran to the north side of the Murrow Federal Building, and had a clear shot. They were actually using it, he says, in his sworn testimony, to see if they couldn't pick up McVeigh's Mercury Marquee in the parking lot north of the uh, Murrow Building, directly across the street, uh, before the bombing. And uh, so if they're seeing that, then we know from other surveillance tape 
that did get released uh, that uh, uh, they uh, certainly would have captured the uh, rider truck as it proceeded east on that street uh, from the Regency Tower building was the name of it. And uh, anyhow, so that's that's in sworn testimony uh, in this hearing, which uh, Mr. Garland uh, served as the senior Justice Department representative personally presenting the case. Now, let's stop a second. Uh, Mr. Garland is a Harvard grad, I understand, and a Harvard Law School grad. So he is one smart guy, right? And he knows he's been trained by the best in how to hold, uh, you know, how to uh, prepare for a preliminary hearing. So one cannot doubt that he and his staff went over in minute detail the testimony of all the government witnesses that were going to be at this preliminary hearing, the purpose of which, Scott, is to determine whether Tim McVeigh can be released on bond or whether he's going to be held in prison pending the trial. Okay, so this is very important, and as a sign of its importance, Garland goes out to Oklahoma City and presents the case. So he knew what this FBI agent was going to be presenting. He knew about the surveillance camera on the outside of the Regency Tower apartment building. He knew the field division, that camera, because he is a smart attorney, and he's going to want to know all these things before he puts that witness on the stand. Now, let's go 20, almost 21 years exactly, uh, forward in time to today. The Justice Department today is telling Jesse Trinidude in a federal court case in Salt Lake City, which was brought because Jesse submitted a Freedom of Information Act request asking for copies of the surveillance tapes. The Justice Department is saying today no such tape exists. Well... In 1995, you had an FBI agent in sworn testimony going into detail about this camera and, and what it caught the field of vision and what they were using it for. Now, he does say at the hearing, which I find ludicrous, but he makes the claim that he personally did not look at all the tape to see the bomb go off. Now, if you had a chance and you had this up on your, at the time, VHS recorder, watching it, you would stop before you could see the bomb go off? Okay, well, that's what he said. But he got by with it. That was what, what Garland said, or that was the FBI no, agent the witness? FBI personally said. And, uh-huh. and Garland is the Justice Department attorney right. who is you know, questioning and presenting uh, his witness, FBI agent John Hersley, to get the court convinced that there's sufficient grounds to hold McVeigh and not give him bond and release. So anyhow... Garland, Merrick Garland had to be aware of the testimony that was to be presented. And this is also when Charlie Hanger, good old Charlie, the uh, highway patrolman who apprehended McVeigh 90 minutes after the bombing, headed north toward Kansas, away from Oklahoma City. Now, let me just stop a second here and remind the audience that, you know, every other state trooper in Oklahoma is headed basically to Oklahoma City. Not everyone, but all in the immediate area, and some from pretty far off. For example, an agent down in out of Bell, Oklahoma, he's headed to Oklahoma City. All right? So uh, this Charlie Hanger says he's headed south, and then for some reason 
he turns and goes north. Well, as he's going north, he sees this car with no license plate. And that's Tim McVeigh and his Mercury Marquis. And he pulls McVeigh over for not having a tag. Now, this is at the time you've got this huge cloud of smoke over Oklahoma City, probably visible at that point by Charlie Hanger, uh, north of Oklahoma City. But he stops this guy with a because he doesn't have a tag on his car. And the rest, as they say, is history. Arrest McVeigh, finds all sorts of incriminating evidence and so on. But now, now, Roger, ahead. let me stop you there for yeah. a second, because yeah. I guess that's the first time I've ever heard it implied that it was a mysterious circumstance that he was pulled over in the first place. Uh, yeah. That hanger had just so happened to pull him over kind of a thing. Do you have any any other uh, bit of evidence that would make that seem mysterious rather than a stroke of luck? No, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that the hanger did is he was using his personal cell phone to talk to the dispatcher. Well, why would you do that? Well, because if you use your Cooper sedan radio, that conversation is recorded and the conversation is transcribed. But when you call on your cell phone, it is not. All right. Well, so, okay. So as far as that goes, how does that relate back to Garland then? Okay. Well, Garland is aware of all this stuff. He's got a He's got to be aware in minute detail uh, of what's going to be presented, and Charlie Hanger is going to be there presenting the case to the court at the preliminary hearing on April the 27th about McVeigh and why he should not be released. And part of Hanger's presentation is how he describes his pulling McVeigh over and uh, McVeigh having a gun and, and all this, but what is not presented at that preliminary hearing, but it's come out later, is the dash camera on Trooper Hanger's car, which captures a lot, but it doesn't get turned on for some reason until McVeigh is already in the back seat with the handcuffs on. Now, what, what's the purpose of having a dash cam on a trooper's car like that? It's yeah. to capture the most dangerous moment for the trooper when he pulls somebody over, which is when he gets out of the car and approaches the individual he's pulled over. All right, hold it right there, Roger. we got to take this break. we got to take this break. We'll be right back, y'all, with Roger Charles after this. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday. And The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, guys. Welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. So Judge Merrick Garland has been nominated by uh, President Obama to be the new Associate Justice on the Supreme Court to replace Antonin Scalia. And uh, we're talking with Roger Charles, co-author of the book Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed and Why It Still Matters, about uh, Garland's role as a Justice Department official, chief of their criminal division, in covering up the Oklahoma City bombing. And uh, if it's all right with you, uh, Roger... Uh, if you'll bear with me for a second, sure. I want to read this quote out of your book, and we can get okay. back to Charlie Hanger and the pullover or whatever okay. other detailed yeah. discussion uh, in a moment, if you wish. Sure. 
But there's uh, this is, I think, the most important part of the book, actually. Well, possibly. Uh, page 328. Larry Mackey, um, and everyone forgive the government newspeak and triple and double, quadruple negatives and whatever in the way he phrases this, but I think everyone can understand what he says. Mackey, one of the U.S. attorney uh, prosecutors here, uh, says, if you had said to us, anybody in the room 100% confident that McVeigh was alone, raise your hand, we would have all kept our hands in our laps, he said. Which is, of course, kind of a weird backwards way of saying, if you agree that we all help cover up and allow the real perpetrator, the rest of yep. the perpetrators of the attack, yep. get away with it, raise your hand. They would have all had to raise their hands. They had agreed to let everybody else get away with it. And as you explain in their words, as you report, their explanation basically boils down to they were afraid that if they try to prosecute everybody, then McVeigh would not get the death penalty because his lawyers would be able to say, well, Strassmeyer made him do it and he's just an innocent boy and so let him go and then he would only get life. And so that was the decision they made was to let everybody else go uh, just in order to stick the death penalty on this one guy. Is that right or could you elaborate upon that? Did they really believe that? That was their excuse or what? Come on. No, that, that's partially. That's here's the the key thing, is that as John Cash, who you know died almost uh, uh, nine years ago, uh, but as John Cash and Glenn Wilburn, who's been dead for about well, anyhow, he's passed all too. But as these two guys told me in 1996, when I first got into the investigation. Uh, this was all about the government trying to protect informants that it had inside the bombing group because these informants were telling their handlers who should have been passing the word up the line all about the plans. And then the question is, well, if we, if the government knew in advance, why did they not stop it? And I think I've gone into that with you before. My own view of it, Scott, is that Bombers knew they had infiltrators and turned that from a threat into an advantage and used them to pass disinformation up the line to the handlers. And what happened was a decoy truck was used, and the FBI was fat, dumb, and happy, thinking they had it under control, and that they comes in the back door with the bomb truck, blows up the building with the daycare center, and they say, oh, dear, we have a problem in Oklahoma City. What are we going to do? Well, they had to contain the damage. They had to keep it to just McVeigh and Nichols, because if they went beyond that, then it would involve government informants. As John Cash and Glenn Wilburn told me and Don Thrasher, the 2020 producer, when we started working on this in 1996, this was a government sting gone bad. And all the evidence, and I've accumulated a lot of evidence in the last almost 20 years I've been working on this, all the evidence supports that initial conclusion that John Cash and Glenn Wilburn reached back 20 years ago. All right. Now, out of all of these guys who've been named as probably or possibly involved, um, you know, most of them neo-Nazis mm-hmm. of one kind or another, yep. Andre Strassmeyer appears to be the one, or maybe they're more Roger Moore, maybe, uh, who 
he was basically an agent provocateur, not really a Nazi, but he was pretending to be a Nazi. He was yeah. infiltrating the Nazis. But who exactly was he working for, and how can you prove it? Well, it's is in the book, and it's in a footnote, unfortunately. But that was an editor, my co-author, uh, a decision of my editor and the co-author to bury it in the footnote. I had a retired senior, very senior CIA official, tell me uh, in 2006 that uh, he had personally read a document uh, at the agency. was not classified as such, but the document said that Andreas Strassmeyer was a German operative reporting to the FBI, and his information was also, of course, going back to Germany. This was a big attempt for the Germans and the U.S. government to decapitate the American radical Nazi white supremacist movement. And this was a sting they set up to do this, and it backfired. And to keep the incompetence or whatever it was that caused it to go bad, Merrick Garland and people like him suppressed evidence and hid the truth, and allowing other people to go free who were not government informants, but it did include some government informants. And so here's the part about this, if you're just hearing this for the first yeah. time in 2016, is this just sounds impossible. Man, you must be off on a red herring, because the level of cover-up you're talking about, I mean, all the major networks, every major newspaper editor in America, you can't even get the Dallas Morning News to get this right, or the Kansas City Star, or nobody it, it, to get this sad, right. How could it be? It's a sad commentary on the state of journalism uh, in our country, and independent uh, reporting. Uh, I can guarantee you, I watched it up close and personally saw uh, ABC uh, fold uh, and, and kill a piece on Carol Howe, who was a ATF informant, talking about these guys' plans to blow up federal buildings in Oklahoma City or Tulsa six months before they blew up the Murrow Building in Oklahoma City. She actually made a trip there with a couple of these neo-Nazis, Strassmeyer and a guy named Dennis Mahon, to recon targets. This is four, four or five months before the bombing. And all this is reported to her ATF handlers and to the Justice Department. So oh, and her, her handler, Finley, admits this on the record under yes. oath, under cross-examination. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, this, is, this is just a huge screw-up by the government. And guys, smart guys like Merrick Garland and smart gals like Jamie Gorelick who was the Deputy Attorney General during a lot of this, uh, they were there to uh, keep the lid on it, to suppress evidence, contain the damage. And, uh, you know, Slick Willie was able to turn the Oklahoma City bombing uh, from what should have been an impeachable offense into an advantage, and he credits it with his winning re-election in 1996. He really did brag about he it. He did. He, he bragged did. about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, people don't realize just the, the degree of duplicity and dishonesty. And, to and me, it's the same as 9-11. They may as well have done it on purpose to the degree they exploited it, the shamelessness and the cynicism yeah. with which yeah. they exploited Glenn Wilburn's grandchildren's deaths yeah. for their yeah. own political gain. is It's so unbelievable, and... I remember it firsthand yeah. as it happened. I still can't believe it. Yeah, I, that's an excellent point, my friend, is that the government, our government, these high-level officials, these very smart, 
Harvard grads like Merritt Garland used the very grief of the Oklahoma City people who, who had friends and loved ones die, family members die in the bombing. They used that grief to promote the cover-up. I mean, these are black-hearted, cold-hearted, self-promoting career bureaucrats, and they'll do anything. That history is clear on that point. Yep. Well, and by the way, uh, not that we doubt you or anything, but just cooperation here. The New York Times uh, has an article from uh, by Charlie Savage from back in 2010 uh, where he's happy to brag that the Oklahoma City bombing made him the man he is and all of this stuff. Uh, Merrick Garland, the new nominee uh, for the Supreme Court, is and is happy to tell the story about how you're damn right he had his hands on on this case yep. far more than anybody in his position would ever do because of yep. just how important it was. So he can't back off responsibility when he's that willing to claim credit for this case. Uh, Scott, I haven't told you this because I just did this uh, last uh, last fall. I found a document uh, which I'd not seen before, and in it, the FBI clearly states that they knew that McVeigh was connected to associates. It's, it, the phrasing is McVeigh and associated bank robbers, not alleged associated bank robbers, not, you know, we think maybe perhaps could be, makes a flat declarative statement, McVeigh and associated, or bank robber associates is how it's phrased. Yeah. McVeigh and bank robber associates. Now that's, that's in a document that slipped through. It's clear in the context of how I found it that this was a document that was meant to stay in the restricted file that the FBI does not even share with the Justice Department. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Do you have a second? I'm keeping you over time here, but um, it just occurred to me this. Um, I don't know if you and I have ever spoken about this uh, before, but it's just one of the zillion little OKC yeah. anecdotes floating around in my brain is something I saw on court TV once where it was the prosecution of Shane and Chevy Kehoe yeah. who were uh, a couple of white supremacist bank yeah. robbers and they're. Their actual gun battle, where they were taken alive, was yeah. famous because it was on real stories of the highway patrol and this and that. So all of America probably somewhere deep in their brain have seen this footage of these two guys pulled over in their beaten up old suburban and getting yeah. in a gunfight with the cops. They played it over and over and over again yeah. back, you know, a decade ago or whatever. Now, they, they weren't arrested then, Scott. They weren't arrested. Oh, no, they got later. away with that one? They got away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They got away at that point. Yeah. Oh. Jeez, well, no, so I screwed my story up. Yeah. But anyway, no, so right. it's the prosecution of one or the yeah. other of those. I forget which it was. Yeah. But um, the motel manager was called as a witness. Yeah. And the motel manager testified that the morning of the Oklahoma bombing, that one or the other of the Kehoe brothers yeah. had come in and very early in the morning and said, turn it to CNN, something yeah. big is going to happen, and sat yeah. there glued to the TV the whole time. Yeah. Until yeah. and then whooped and hollered and celebrated as soon as the news came across that Oklahoma City had been bombed. Well, let me just add to that, and that is in our book. But let me just add. Oh, to is that. it okay? Great. Yeah, uh, that and this is not in the book. I don't believe that uh, the other brother has been tried in in uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, so the trial, the, the sentencing has taken place. I think it's sentencing, but anyhow, the the courts just stood adjourned. And he yells out, the 
reporters are still there and the judge and everybody. And he says, my brother's involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. Yells it out in court. Well, this is, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, roughly. By noon, an assistant U.S. attorney and an FBI agent from Cincinnati, Ohio, are meeting with this Kehoe boy and his public defender. And at one point, shortly after they start the meeting, uh, the public defender is asked to step outside. He does. He comes back after a while, and there's a big smirk on everybody's face. And it's announced that uh, the government has uh, cut a deal with this Kehoe boy, and he's going to go into witness protection plan. And, oh, by the way, he's going to have conjugal visits with his wife, and he ain't going to say anything about his brother being involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. Just amazing. And then, yeah. and then that's just how it goes, right, where that little clip yeah. gets some coverage on Oklahoma City because there's no – you know, top-down, superseding order on all Oklahoma coverage that you're never supposed to mention any of these things. Sometimes they surface here and there. But what yeah. there never is is the, as you said, the 2020 ABC special put together by Roger Charles, you know, explaining, look, everybody. Even when Dan Rather um, got Rick Ojeda and some of those other FBI yeah. agents yeah. who yeah. who uh, were willing to go public and complain yeah. that the investigation, yeah. the material that they had put together was yeah. excluded from the defense sure. and all that. They still didn't say. I don't think Dan Rather asked him. All right, Rick, so what's it all about, buddy? Come on. You know what I mean? What what was yeah. it? And then I talked to Rick Ojeda uh, way back when, 2002 or three. It's yeah. in the archives. Yeah. And he said, yeah, you know, the investigation... That, you know, my part of it led to Oklahoma City, and then they said, great job, Rick, and then they gave me another assignment, which was as per usual, nothing suspicious yep. there, but that was the material that the defense never got, was the yep. material that he had developed immediately. Come on, it fell on his lap from a hundred different directions. That Elohim well, you know, City is what the Nazis yeah. are looking for. Yeah, he interviewed J.D. Cash, and that report of the interview by Rick Ojeda of J.D. Cash is very interesting. I think it's like nine pages. And then J.D. later submitted a page and a half additional, you know, correcting a couple of factual things, but basically a damn good report by Rick. But here's the interesting thing is, one, it was withheld from the trial, and secondly, Rick didn't do this because the admin people do this. Somebody put a different case number on that 302 report of investigation. It's not the Oklahoma City bombing investigation case number. It's a different case number. So it wouldn't be filed with the Oklahoma City case file, case uh, documents. I mean, there's so many. Then Jesse Trinidad has found out that there are secret files, hidden files, restricted files that the Bureau has. Not everybody in the Bureau can get access to them. They go to special people. You know, I was in the Pentagon for a couple of tours when I was an active duty Marine, and uh, there were these special access programs. And you had to be you had to be read in for each one. There'd be a code name for it, and you were cleared for, uh, you know, lion tamer or prairie grass or whatever the code word was. And if a message came in and had that on it before you could read it, you had to show the communications people that you were cleared to read documents related to that code word. And the same thing in the bureau. They've got people that can see everything. A few at the very top, but the average working guy and gal. They don't get to see everything. They've got their head down trying to do their job out on the street, and all this other stuff's taking place behind them. But they, most of them know that in the Oklahoma City case, they know there's stuff that was presented 
that was either false, incomplete, misleading. And they know, well, Danny uh, Olson called for an independent grand jury, and he was one of the lead investigators. Right. Yeah, I've got you know, the audio he, of that where he yeah, said he that knows on the, the, the whole truth has been suppressed. Right. All right, now let me ask you one more thing, man. I'm sorry for keeping you all this time. Uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, But uh, tell me this. Is there a single saved uh, J.D. Cash archive? Because uh, I never was able to really locate one, although I admit it's been a long time since I tried. And I I don't think it was even ever very well organized in the first place when he was still alive. But but it would be a tragedy if that stuff was all lost to history, you know? I've got it, and I, I will make arrangements for it to go to the appropriate archive. I've got a couple in mind. Uh, and by the way, uh, you know, did you know Mike uh, uh, McNulty? Yeah, yeah. I, I interviewed McNulty a couple. I had interviewed JD, you know, yeah. 15 well, times Mike, or something. But I interviewed Mike, McNulty once or twice. Yeah. Well, Mike passed away in February of last year. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I hope I was able to uh, help uh, an attorney friend of his, Dave Hardy, from uh, yeah, I know Dave too. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, he, I believe, based on my recommendation, uh, that Dave was able to get Mike's papers moved to the University of Texas, uh, which oh, is where great. they should be. So Mike had a quite a extensive archive, as you know, and he paid a hell of a price. But you know, it was a guy that was so outraged by the abuse and, and uh, lying that took on uh, our government did after the Waco thing in April of '93. He left a successful insurance brokerage in California and devoted his rest of his life to trying to get justice for those people that were murdered yeah. by uh, our government. And for those who don't know, listening, that uh, Mike McNulty, he was the really the man, the main producer behind Waco, The Rules of Engagement, Waco, yeah. A New Revelation, and The yeah. Fleer Project, all of which yeah. proved beyond any shadow of a doubt the a premeditated doubt. mass murder of the yeah. Branch Davidians by the yeah. Army, Delta Force, and mm-hmm. the FBI. Yeah. So, but yeah. anyway, hey, listen, man. Uh, yeah, so, hey, so yeah, do that. Put that JD Cash archive up there somewhere because yep. history's going to need that. No, it's uh, it's I, that's where I found this document I just referred. To, oh yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, it's an amazing collection. He was quite a guy. All right. Well, listen, man. Thank you very much again, Roger. Right, we'll talk right, again. Take care. You bet. Appreciate. Bye. All right, so that's Roger Charles. He's co-author of this book. It's not uh, it's not the hardest hitting. Uh, I think because Gumbel kind of made it a less uh, hard-hitting, but I think he did it for a good reason, to try to really make it acceptable to the librarians and to everybody, to the to official people, that it's okay to look within this cover. Oklahoma City, why the what the investigation missed and why it still matters.